All right, this morning, <clears throat> we are coming to our next bit of the creed as we use it as a guide to talk about uh, the doctrines, the historical tenets of the faith, uh, what the early church was saying, what the apostles were saying, what was handed down from Jesus, handed down from Paul to those early Christians, and how that played out, uh, how that formed what we would call the orthodox faith. Um, we're trying to get behind and sort of underneath the last 2,000 years of church history and splits and debates and theology and get back to the heart of what is the message, what are the bedrock principles and faiths that we claim um, so that we can live that faithfully and honestly in our time. And so today's section of the creed is he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And so today we're going to talk uh, particularly about the suffering. And when I say Christ's suffering, what comes immediately to mind? The cross. And that's usually what we talk about. Um, today we're going to talk, we're going to delay our discussion of the cross until next week. We're going to talk about the other ways in which Christ suffered. Um, Hebrews says this, says, because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested. Uh, and so this is obviously a, a passage in Hebrews which alerts us to the fact that God has been through, Jesus has been through what we have been through. He has, uh, he has suffered, he has been tested, as it says. And as we talked a couple weeks ago when we talked about the God-man and the, the duality or the union of divine uh, second member of the Trinity, eternal son with humanity, we talked about how the fact that he truly was human, everything about us that is human was true of him. He, he can understand that. Um, but what this tells us is that what we go through is what he went through. And what he went through is what we are going through. And that is, as this uh, passage talks about, that, that is described as, as suffering, right? And that's the reality of our faith. That's the reality of what we're called into. That's the reality of what Jesus went through. But if suffering is the cross, if suffering is the scourging, the whipping, how many of us have been through that? <laughs> we got one? You've been crucified? Um, I mean, we have sort of spiritually, of course, as we unite with Christ, that our, we, we, we go through that. Um, but suffering in the, in the text, in, in the description, particularly in the creed and in the other church, uh, the, the term, the suffering of Christ was and became shorthand for the life of Christ. It is beyond and more than just the crucifixion, right? And Hebrews hints at that here when it, I mean, it says, I mean, I don't know about you, I've never been whipped with, you know, a cat of nine tails, you know, had flesh ripped from my chest. I've never been hanging on a cross. And so what we typically think of Christ's suffering is not a suffering that is like what we go through. But this says Christ suffered like we suffer, all right? So there's more to Christ's suffering, and there is other suffering that is like our suffering, which is not just the cross, although truly that is the, the height of his suffering. Um, and so let's think for a minute back through Christ's life and what was the early church really thinking about or talking about when they talked about Christ's suffering. When, uh, when we spoke a year ago, if you were with us at that time, we talked uh, a couple weeks about what is the gospel, and we talked about uh, the creeds. And at that time, I mentioned that there is, is a problem inherent in the creeds, and that is, as we mentioned before, they, they have been developed in reaction to ideas or theologies that are coming up in the church that are heretical, that the church fathers and the, the leaders of the church are coming together to discuss and debate and issue a statement, or in this case, a creed, uh, that sets the record straight, that, that uh, institutes and establishes the doctrine and the position of the church against what was heresy. And we've talked about this for a number of weeks, of course. 
But what the Apostles' Creed and even the Nicene Creed do is they, and, and we've seen now, we talked, the first section was about God and the, the first member of the Trinity, God the Father. And then last week we started to talk about Jesus, the Son, and we talked about how he was born of the Virgin, right? And so it's the birth story. Well, this is the very next line. And what is it? The death story. And so the creeds naturally jump from birth to death to resurrection, and that's it. And they leave the whole gospel story, the narratives, out of the picture. And so as we recite the creed, what we're doing is we are expressing sort of the fundamental doctrines that were important at that time that developed the creed. But if we become purely creedal, we miss a lot of the story. And we talked, um, we, I mean, we talked a lot about the story uh, and the life of Jesus and the, the importance. I mean, if, if all that's important is Jesus was born, he's born of a virgin and he died, then what are the gospels for? Because they, they tell us that at the beginning and they tell us that in the end. Two of the gospels don't even tell us the birth narrative. It's all about Jesus and his teaching and his confrontation with the, the religious authorities, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes. It's all about the way he taught his disciples. It's his healing, his work, right? They're not in the creed, right? And so the creeds have a little bit of a problem. But what we fail to realize when we read this line is that when the early church, particularly by the end of that first century, talked about Jesus's life, they talk, when they talked about that whole gospel narrative, they described it as suffering, and so while we would read this now 2,000 years later and read suffering and go to the cross, that's all about the cross, what they were professing is they were encapsulating the whole life of Jesus. And so we're going to take a minute and we're going to think back on his life and think about what are the ways in which uh, that's true, right? And so why would the early church or why would we now look at Jesus' life and say, here's a man who suffered, who sacrificed for God, for, for the kingdom, for his purpose in the world? And so if we think about uh, the very beginning of his life, let's go back to that birth story. What happens upon his birth? And I'm thinking here, uh, particularly, I believe it's in Mark's gospel where the, the wise men show up and they go to Herod, right? And they say, we've seen his star. Where is this Messiah that we were looking for that we may go worship him? And Herod turns and goes to his wise men and they're not exactly sure what's going on. But after a while, they determine that it's supposed to be in Bethlehem. And so Herod sends the wise men on. What does he tell them? What does he tell the wise men as he sends them to go worship Jesus? Yeah, go come back and tell me so I can go worship him, right? Is that what Herod's going to do? No. <laughs> Herod is one of um, the Herod, the Herods, um, the Hasmonean dynasty was the dynasty of Jewish people who took control of the Jewish people. They made compromises with Rome in order to get the power. They were not Levites. They were not of the priestly nation, but they took a priestly role. Uh, they were not out of the line of David. They were not the kings. They, sh they should not have been in that position. But they forced themselves into that position through violence and through compromise with Rome and became the, the leaders, the, the, the kings of the era, King Herod, right? Um, and there were a series of Herods, uh, and, and this Herod was one of them in that line. And so to hear that the Messiah has come is a threat. And so Herod wanted to eliminate that threat. All right, let's forget about the Messiah. These, these are, the Hasmoneans were not, the Herods were not exactly after God's kingdom. They were after their own kingdom and their own power and their own glory. Um, and so when they heard there was a Messiah, well, I need to do away with that threat. So despite the fact that he says, I want to worship him, we know, of course, they did not because God told the wise men, hey, don't go back to him, right? And in fact, told Mary and Joseph to do what? 
flee to Egypt because Herod's coming for you. And what did Herod do when he realized that the uh, wise men had not come back and they double-crossed him? Yeah, he issues an, yeah, he kills all the children under two. He kills a pharaoh, right? This is a, the retelling in some ways of the Moses story, right? All of the young children in the area were slaughtered, but Jesus was in exile, right? So at the very beginning, we have Herod who comes with the threat of death, who seeks to destroy him, and he has to go into exile. So the, from the very, very beginning of the story of Jesus, we're reading about a man who is on the outs, who will be sought after, who will be persecuted, who ultimately, of course, will die. But from the very beginning of his birth, he was persecuted and he, he endured suffering. Um, and then in Mark, the first story, of course, that we have um, in Mark's telling is John the Baptist and the moment when Jesus comes to John the Baptist, and he submits to John's baptism, and that's a discussion for another day as to how and why that happened. Um, but Jesus comes up out of the water, right? We're told God uh, descends on him. The Spirit descends on a dove. God's voice says to him, you are my son with whom I'm well pleased. And then in Mark, we're t- it's Mark says he immediately is, what happens? Yeah. Yeah, he's sent to the desert. So God thrusts him, the spirit compels him into the desert where he will spend time praying and fasting. And at the end of those 40 days, what happens to him? He was tested, right? So right out of the gate, as his public ministry begins, who comes after him? Sorry? The devil. Satan himself is is on his heels, all right? So first we have humanity in the form of Herod, seeking after him to destroy him. The minute he comes out and starts to proclaim and be identified as the Messiah publicly, Satan comes after him, right? And so at the, at the very beginning of the story, we are tipped off to the fact that this is a guy who is in for it, right? This is not going to be an easy life for this Jesus character. And it turns out not to be. As we go through the stories, of course, he gets attacked and persecuted uh, by all the religious elite, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. They all come for him. They're trying to shame him publicly. They're trying to quiet him. Ultimately, of course, they uh, seek to kill him and they are successful in that. Um, but Jesus, not only was he uh, sought after by the outside, he himself, as he comes, we're told he sets aside his divinity in order to become human, but he becomes a particular kind of human. Not only does he give up, sacrifice his divine right, but he sacrifices every human comfort that there was to be had, right? Jesus becomes a homeless wandering rabbi who wanders around with, he says, uh, foxes have dens, but the, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. That wasn't a figure of speech. He literally has no home because he's wandering around. And he's teaching, he's healing, he's treating and, and addressing the cares and the problems of the people. Uh, but he is entirely at the whim of the provision of God, the provision of his friends and complete strangers as he does this. And so any of the comforts that, certainly we have way more comforts. To, I mean, we sit in a nice air-conditioned building today, right? But even then they had certain comforts, but he chose to deny those. To, to do away with those and instead enter into this wandering life in which he's going to be argued with. He's going to be sought after. Uh, there, there were those in the crowds who were seeking to destroy him. Those are those in the crowds who were seeking to get from him, to leverage his power. There were those who needed healing. So day in and day out, he had the crowds tugging at his, at his tunic, 
following him everywhere, exhausting him, seeking his healing and his power for themselves. And so even if they're not after him to harm him, they want something from him day after day after day. And here's Jesus time and time again, sacrificing his time, his energy, his will, his knowledge, his power, giving it to the people, right? And then of course, we come to the last 18 hours of his life, his first life, right? Uh, in which he's arrested, scourged, wit within an inch of his life, led through the streets, carrying his cross until he can no longer carry it, and then finally crucified. And so that is the, the, the ultimate suffering. But when we come to a line in the creed and when the early church talks about the suffering of Christ, they're talking about all of that. The, the reality and the understanding that what it was to be the Messiah was to be the suffering servant that Isaiah talks of. And that, that suffering was not just the crucifixion. That suffering was his entire life. His entire life was him at the will or at the beck and call of the people to love them, to care for them, to teach them, to do the work of God, to, to bring about the kingdom and to deny himself and who he was in, in many ways. And he denies that not only practically, but verbally in many ways, you know, people say, I know you're the son of God. He says, be quiet, right? He, he, he does not want to claim that mantle because, well, there are lots of reasons. And again, that's, that's a long conversation for another day, but he doesn't even want to be known as the son of God and so he, he takes all, that he's, all the honor he's due and he shoves it aside and says, I'm here to serve God and serve people, right? This is Jesus. This is the person that we call Lord. And when we say Lord, remember, what we're saying is Yahweh, right? Lord is Yahweh. This is, this is God. This is the God whom we claim has done a work to save us, that we claim to, has saved us, that we claim to follow, that we're staking our eternal life on, right? Jesus tells his disciples this. If any, want to come, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? A couple of important parts about this. First of all, if any, anybody can do this, right? The, the invitation is open to anyone. So anyone who wants to do this can follow me. Anyone can be my disciple. And remember when we talked about discipleship before, to be a disciple in this day and age, or that day and age, was to be a student, a follower of a rabbi. And what that meant was you left your life and you followed this man everywhere he went. You picked up his dust. Remember we talked about one week, there was a phrase that says, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And that alluded to the fact that you literally followed your rabbi on the roads. As he walked, he'd kick up dust and you would literally be caked in his dirt, right? But it was meant to signify that you spend so much time following your rabbi that you become your rabbi. You learn to think like them, speak like them, live like them, answer questions like them, see the world like them. You literally become your rabbi. To be a disciple was to become the one who you followed, Right? And what Jesus is saying, anyone can do that. At that time, that was for the religious elite. You had to pass a lot of tests and a lot of inquiry and prove yourself worthy to become a disciple of a rabbi. And then you had to actually be a disciple, a Talmudim, a Talmud, right? Uh, and go through that process to actually become a rabbi yourself. What, you, what Jesus is saying is it can be any, anybody can do this, but there's a catch. And what's that catch? 
you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross, right? You have to become like me. You have to be willing to suffer, right? This isn't the prosperity gospel, which will tell you that, hey, accept Jesus in your life and everything's going to be great. You're going to, uh, you know, you, you, you got to obey, but if you obey, you're going to be blessed financially. You're going to have a nice house. You're going to have great friends. That's a lie. That's a complete and utter lie. The promise from Jesus is that if you follow me, you will be persecuted. You will suffer, right? In order to be a Christian, you must acknowledge and step into a life of sacrifice and suffering. Anyone who wants to follow me has got to do it. You got to take up your cross. You got to be willing to give up, right? Give up a lot, frankly. Um, The early church understood this. They looked at the life of Jesus They saw his entire life was a life of suffering, a life of self-sacrifice for the benefit of the kingdom and others. And they took that upon themselves, right? So today, our little history section is going to be, what happened? We're going to ask, what what happened? You know what happened to the apostles? We're going to talk about it today, all right? So here's the list of apostles. We have Paul, we have the rest of them. Matthias is the one that took over for Judas, right? After uh, Jesus leave, they cast lots, and Matthias steps in as the 12th, right? So Paul, what happens to Paul? We know this story. He's beheaded, right? He's arrested in Jerusalem. He's carted off to Rome. He would have been crucified, except he's a Roman citizen, so they don't crucify Roman citizens. So Paul is beheaded, right? So his head gets lopped off in Rome. Why? Because he was speaking the truth of the gospel. He refused to recant. He refused to bow. Uh, He became a a threat, right? The, The gospel in that day and age was a threat to the powers, right? That's why Herod was after Jesus to begin with. Paul knew that in Acts, in the end of Acts, it's in the, you know, the, the 20th chapters and on. We read time and time again, people try to keep Paul from going back to Jerusalem because if he goes back to Jerusalem, he's going to get arrested. And he says, no, that's, that's, that's my lot, basically. He says, that's where I'm going, much like Christ did, right? And he, and he meets his death, knowing full well that that was the result of living into the calling that Christ had put on his, on his life. Do you know what happened to Peter? Yeah, he's not a Roman citizen, so he goes to Rome and he gets crucified. He gets hung up, just like Jesus, right? For, for, for what? For being an apostle. James, this is uh, James, the son of Zebedee. You know what happens to him? Yeah, he's martyred. He gets run through by a sword, we're told. This is actually in Acts. It's in the 12th chapter. Uh, Herod Agrippa, the, the then Herod, one of, it's the son of the earlier Herod we talked about. Uh, he doesn't much care for James and the, the, the message that he's preaching in Jerusalem. And so he decides he wants to kill him. Andrew, do you know what happens to Andrew? Andrew goes off into what is now modern day Russia, sort of the Soviet bloc area. Um, it was known then as the land of the man eaters. <laughs> but uh, he goes off there. He, he ministers there. He apostles there. He plants churches there. Then he goes on into what was Asia Minor, which is now modern day Turkey. He spent some time in Greece. Take a wild guess. He's crucified, Right. He meets his end, his death, right? Thomas. Thomas goes and he ministers in Syria. We're told that in the end, he's pierced by four soldiers. Four soldiers surround him and they run him through with spears for the work that he's doing for the church. Philip, uh, he is thought to have ministered in Carthage, which is in Northern Africa. Uh, He converted the wife of a Roman proconsul, which is the Roman official of the area. Uh, The proconsul did not take kindly to that. And so he kills him, right? He kills him. For, he's, he's killed literally for making converts, for expanding the kingdom of God. 
Matthew, Matthew goes on to Persia and to Ethiopia. We're told that he was stabbed to death for doing Christ's work for expanding the church in Ethiopia. Bartholomew, he went to India along with Andrew. Um, he went to Armenia, Ethiopia, and Southern Arabia. And he too was martyred for speaking up and preaching the gospel. James, this is the other James. Um, he's, he's one of three James that we know of. James, this, the brother of Christ that wrote the epistle. This James, son of Alphaeus, and the other James, which we've already talked about. Uh, but we know from Josephus, the historian, that he was actually stoned and then beaten to death by clubs by Pharisees in Jerusalem. Simon the Zealot, uh, he was in Persia. He was forced to sacrifice to the sun god. He refused to do so. He was martyred. We're picking up on a pattern here. <laughs> right? This is what happens to those who follow Jesus. Matthias, who stepped in for Judas, he goes on to Syria. He gets a little different punishment. He's burned to death, right? Uh, Jude, we're down to Jude, yeah. Jude goes on into Armenia, Syria, and Persia, and he too was martyred. And then John, if John the apostle is the same John as John the seer, the revelator, the one who writes Revelation, there's some question as to whether or not he was uh, for our purposes, and tradition tells us that he was. What happens to John? John gets to live, right? John lives to a ripe old age, but, but what? On an island in exile all by himself right? So it's not exactly a nice retirement, right? Um, so John too suffers. One out of all of these 13 men doesn't die for Christ. And as I'm thinking about, and as I've gone through a period in my life when uh, you really, you know, you kind of, you're tearing your faith apart and trying to reconstruct, like, is this actually something that I believe? This is one of the, the, the most profound pieces of evidence to me that this was real. Because what we're talking about here, Paul says he saw Jesus on the road, but these other men all knew Jesus. They, these are the 12 that we talk about, walked around with him for three years, okay? They were the ones who were taught by him. They were the ones that became like him. They're the ones who mourned and feared for their life when he was crucified. And they're the ones that rejoiced when he came back to life. And then they went out into a world who hated them, who sought to kill them, and they proclaimed the resurrection. And this is what happened to them. Every single one of them died as a result of it. They understood that whatever the call was to be like their rabbi, to be like Jesus, was to put their lives on the line. It was to go into these various places which we read, to preach the gospel, to suffer, to suffer as Jesus suffered daily, right? They were itinerant. They were homeless in the same way. Maybe they went into a town and stayed for a while. Like Paul would go and stay with friends for a while, but that's not his home. He's just hanging out with somebody for a while, right? And then he'd move on. He had no place to set down roots and build a family. And you know, he gave up all of that in order to preach the gospel, do the thing that God has called him to do. And all of these men did the same thing and ultimately met their death. What it means to follow Christ, what it means to proclaim the kingdom of God is to enter in suffering and put your life on the line. For them, literally. From us, it's probably more figurative. In some ways for us, it's therefore more difficult, right? Because the, the decision is not as stark. It's not yes or no. If you say yes, you're going to die, make a decision, right? As we get into the early church, uh, it was very quickly understood that this was the model. Jesus, the apostles have laid down the gauntlet, so to speak. They have said, this is what it means to follow Jesus. It means to give up your life. 
It means daily giving up your life, giving up your desires, your comforts, your goals, your aspirations, uh, your possessions. It means giving up. And at the end, it very well may be laying down your life to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Right? They understood that. And to become a martyr became the highest calling within the early church. In the first 300 years of the church, there was no higher calling than to die. People looked forward to going to their death, to becoming a martyr. And so if you know figures from that period, for example, one, his name is Justin. He's, not, he's known as Justin Martyr. Martyr's not his last name. He's Justin Martyr because he became a martyr and he's held as a saint in the church because he professed his faith in the face of certain death he was killed for it. He was martyred for it. And this was a public declaration of your faith. And all Christians ought to be so lucky as to die for their Savior. The early church embraced this, right? They understood that following Jesus meant death, very likely. If they get caught, they're going to be killed, right? There were other periods during that 300 years where they weren't fed to the lions, but they would be persecuted, they'd be flogged, they would be inquired of, and if they recanted, then they would uh, they'd be allowed to go, but if they didn't, they would, be, they would be beaten within an inch of their life, like Jesus was flogged. But they wouldn't necessarily be killed. These became known as the confessors. So if you ever heard such and such the confessor, they're popular in the Catholic Church, they are revered as saints, uh, they were called confessors because they too, while they didn't to end up dying, they continued to confess Jesus as Lord in the face of persecution and suffering. They didn't give in. It was so, uh, so ingrained in the early church that you, you claim God in the face of all suffering and persecution, no matter what, that those who recanted, if you went before one of these tribunals or a judge or whoever it was that was accusing you and you recanted, you said, okay, I don't want to get whipped. I, I, I denounced Jesus. You became what were called the lapsed. And if in a few weeks or a couple of years, you come back to the community of faith and you say, look, I messed up. Tough. There were those within the early church that said, you're done. You've recanted. You've become an apostate. You're out, right? If you're not in enough to face suffering and death, you're out. You don't get it. You're not a follower of Christ. You're done. The, those that wanted to be a little easier uh, argued for, and, and many of them actually won, you'd be allowed back in on your deathbed. So when it came, you would finally die, when, your life, when it came time for last rites, you'd be allowed back into the community, but only on your deathbed. You had proven yourself unworthy. This is how uh, ingrained and tightly the early church was holding to this model of Jesus, the model of the apostles, this understanding that what it means to follow Jesus is to give it all up right? You are no longer your own. You have been bought and paid for by Jesus Christ. And whatever he calls you to do, you go do. And if it means the end of your life, so be it. All the better for it, right? That was the highest calling you could hope for as a Christian. After the Edict of Milan, which was the uh, edict that Constantine declared or issued that declared the church the official religion of Rome, obviously martyrdom becomes not a thing anymore, Right? You're not going to be persecuted and fed to the lions or crucified or burned or beheaded for claiming Jesus Christ anymore. You know what happened? Anybody know the story of the monks, the desert monks? Right? They saw the problem 
that now existed in that we, we no longer have the opportunity to prove ourselves to our Lord and Savior, right? This martyrdom or this confessorship or the suffering that would happen under the Roman Empire under persecution was no longer a possibility. So they willfully and intentionally left everything and went to the desert to live in poverty, to commune with God and one another. They said, this is the highest form of suffering that we can attain at this point because we can't be put to death. So we're just going to leave everything and go to the desert. And much of our early church thought and influence comes from these desert fathers and mothers at that time who went to the desert, created these monasteries. People from the cities would go out there to learn from them, to teach from them. But a lot of church leadership and influence came out of these men and women in the desert because they were the ones that said, we're, we're going to, in some ways, we're going to make up, we're going to make our own suffering because this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Sitting in a nice courtyard in a, in a fancy house, you know, reclining and eating grapes is not following Jesus. Living a life of luxury is not following Jesus. And so they literally turned around, sold everything and went to the desert, right? But it was understood again. I mean, this, this was what it meant to be a Christian was to renounce a life of luxury, a life of comfort, a life of whatever I want to do, and instead to go follow Jesus, right? Suffering and sacrifice are part of the gig. And so if we're going to look at the, the, uh, the early church where these early doctrines come out of, uh, I, I guess there's not really, maybe we could form a doctrine of suffering, and I'm sure there are those that have, but we're not really talking about a doctrine today, but we are talking about the implications of what Jesus' life of suffering meant as we seek to be like him, right? They very clearly demonstrated for hundreds of years that what it means to follow Jesus is to enter into suffering. So if you've ever heard, sing hallelujah, praise your Lord, be good and God is going to bless you. Well, yeah, he's going to bless you, but it's not going to be like what you want, right? It's not going to be fancy cars and nice houses and uh, vacations on the beach and in the mountains and uh, a life of luxury, right? That's not what we're signing up for. What, what Jesus promises is a life of persecution and suffering, right? It's why he looks at his disciples, his followers, uh, not only his 12, but all of the others that, you know, have followed him on a daily basis, 100 plus, and said, you know, before you sign on for this, count the cost. Understand what it is you're signing up for. And a lot of them left, right? There's, there's at one point, they look at, a group of them look at Jesus and said, this is a hard teaching. Who can, who can, who can understand this or who can accept this? And they left, they went home. They were not for it, right? But that's the call, right? And it's for us now today. So we obviously, at least us today in, in America, in, in Ohio, we're, we're not going to be crucified tomorrow, right? We're not facing that sort of persecution or that level of suffering, but we are called to sacrifice, right? We are called to give of ourselves. And sometimes that's financial. And you know, sometimes that means getting a checkout and right to the church, or sometimes it means uh, going and supporting a nonprofit, or sometimes it means the guy on the corner who's, who's begging for a meal. You feel called to toss him five bucks so he can go get a sandwich, hopefully, right? right? But we are, those, are our, those are resources, right? Some, some week we're going to talk about tithing, right, in the New Testament. It's not what you think it is. In a lot of ways, it's not what the church tells you, Right? That's another, that's a, that's a deep conversation that we need to have, right? But the, the attitude of giving in the New Testament is God gets everything, right? Actually, 
you know, it, it's no longer a 10% tithe every week to the church in the New Testament. It's a, everything you have now belongs to God. God has redeemed you. And so all that you have, your, your person and all of your resources now belong to the kingdom. And for them, they were literally selling all our stuff or bringing their resources, giving it to the leaders of the church who were then distributing it, right? We read about this in Acts, right? And sometimes we're, we're called to do that. And maybe you feel like God's calling you to do that. Maybe you'll walk home today and be like, I don't need that anymore. I'm going to sell it and give the money to somewhere else. That's a great thing, right? But what we are called to do is realize that everything you own is a resource that needs to be at the disposal of the kingdom. And it may be that God's not calling on it today. It may be that your house is your house today, but tomorrow God's going to bring someone into your life who needs a place to stay. And are you willing to be put out enough to have a visitor in your home? Right? It may be that you've got a third car and it's time to sell it because God needs those resources to go to Eastside or to Christ's table or somewhere else. I don't know what that is. I'm not going to tell you what that is. What I'm going to tell you is God owns everything you have. And that is the attitude of the New Testament. That is the attitude of a Christian. My stuff's not my stuff. I'm a steward of it. My job is to make sure that it serves the kingdom as well as possible. Right? So your resources, time, or your resources, uh, financial and material, certainly your time, your effort. Maybe somebody just needs a listening ear for 20 minutes and you're busy. Maybe we need to be more ready to just say, you know what? I got time for you. Right? That was part of Christ's suffering was being accosted and, and run down and tracked down and followed by crowds all day, every day to the point where he had to get a boat and go to the other side of the lake, you know, the Galilee to get away from him. He literally had to run away at times to find some time to rejuvenate, to uh, rest, to get his energy back, to come back and do it again, right? People can be a drain, right? People can be a time suck, right? They can sap your energy, especially someone who needs something, right? We all know there's people who just always complain, right? Maybe, maybe we don't entertain them every time, but there are people who really need help. There are people who really need just a friend to sit and listen, right? And it, it costs you something, it does. Not much, your time, your energy, your attention. But are you willing to give that up for the establishment and the benefit of the kingdom of God? This is what giving of yourself, when God says, I need this, He's not saying, I, I mean, sometimes he says that I need it because you don't need it anymore. It's getting in your way. But a lot of times he says, I need it because we're going to go do something with it. Right? So that's your time. It could be your money. It could be anything in your life. If you, if you put it all in front of God and say, hey, you, you own all this, right? You say, hey, my house is yours. So I'm going to live here. And if, if you need someone else to live here or you need to, us to throw parties or gathering places or we got a nice big yard, we're going to throw, you know, we're literally going to throw a block party. If that's what you want me to do with it, God, to make it a gathering place for people to come and love on each other and know each other that through which we can build relationships and build community. Great. Let's do that. Right. It's a kingdom resource. Are we willing to allow it to be, or are we so selfish that we want to keep it for ourselves? So you're, you're not only just your finances, but your time, your effort. And perhaps the most difficult thing for us as Americans, as self-made people, right. Is to give up our need to control life. Right our need to have goals and ambitions, our need to look at the world and say, that's what success looks like. I'm going that way. When in fact, God needs us to go over here 
to live more humbly. I mentioned in the first service, there's another church. It was a Methodist church at the other side of the state uh, who has a saying uh, that they uh, live simply so that others can simply live. It's a campaign they have to just do with less, right? Do with less. Do you need four cars? Do you need two? Do you need all those clothes? Do you need the new clothes? Can you do it? Can you mend the old ones for, and get through another year so that you free up resources for God to, be, to, to use for his benefit? Right? I mean, we want, we want to have the nice house, the nice cars, the nice job. We want to have influence. We want to climb the corporate ladder. Sometimes God can use all, God can use all of those things. The question is, are you willing to give it up if it's necessary? Right? I'm not saying, please don't hear me say, you have to go home, you got to sell everything, you got to move into a carver box down on 7th Street and live with the poor people. Maybe you do, right? That is a call on certain people, right? There is, there is a time and a place to recognize, you know what, I do need to sell my house and move downtown to live in the midst of the people that God has called me to serve. You know, Mother Teresa went to the poorest place in the world to serve God, gave up everything she had. That, that's a call on certain people. But the, the greater call for all of us is to say, all right, God, I have dreams. I have aspirations. I have possessions. I have things I'm proud of. I have things that I identify myself with, right? I mean, I don't get to play a lot here, but I love playing the guitar. Like that's part of who I am, right? I love doing it. God, if you, if, if you need me to give it up, so be it. Right? Are, are we willing to do that? Like what, what is at the core of you that you identify with, identify yourself by? Are you willing to let go of that if God comes calling? If God comes and knocks on your door and says, okay, it's time for that to go, or I need that, or I need you to share that, are you willing? We also need to realize that this applies not only to us as individuals, but also as a church, as a corporate body, right? We all, probably all, have aspirations, particularly those of us who have been part of this church for a long time, who remember when there were 100 people in here, right? I stand here today and would love to see 200 people in here, right? And as a pastor, as a person who's leading a church, what it means to be successful is to, to grow a church, right? To have more numbers, more, more people coming through the door, more people professing faith, that's a great thing, but uh, let's fill out 100 this year and 200 next year and 300 next year, right? Because that means I'm doing my job, right? We'd love not to sit in a budget meeting and figure out where do we need to come up with another $10,000, right? We'd love to have the coffers full, you know, the, the bank account overflowing. Those are our goals, right? That's not necessarily what God needs to do here. And truth be told, the path to true life is through suffering, right? Jesus is resurrected through death. He's got to go through death to get there. We have to go through death to get there. And you do realize you have to die in order to get to the other side of death, right? And so going through struggle, going through death, going through suffering is literal. You have to go through the literal physical suffering of death in order to get to new life and the promised hereafter, the age to come. Perhaps there will be those of us, maybe, maybe he'll show up tomorrow and that'll be different for some of us. But most of us are going to actually die. But it's also true corporately and individually that we must seek out the ways in which God and be open to the ways in which God calls us to suffer because it's in going through that suffering, giving up 
of ourself that we find true life. That was the promise Jesus made. There will be not one person who follows me who will not give up their life, who will get life in return. And it's a more profound, meaningful, difficult life than you will ever have otherwise. Right? Life, God wants to give us true life, life of meaning and purpose with him. The word ministry means, you know what it means? You know what ministry means? Okay. Yeah, service. Right? We think of the ministry of Jesus. A lot of us think of the things he taught, the, things, you know, the miracles he did, the, the works of power that he did. When we talk about the ministry of Jesus, what we're talking about is the service of Jesus, that Jesus came to serve. In other traditions, pastors are called ministers. And somehow that's some like term to be reverent. They're called ministers because the, we're the ones here that, to serve you all. Like if, if as the leaders of the church, we aren't in service to the people of the church, we're not doing our job. Right? To, to be in ministry means to be in service, to be denying yourself, taking up your cross, and serving God and others. We must humble ourselves. We, we have to be able to sacrifice, willing to sacrifice and suffer for his kingdom. Instead, we have in many ways inherited this, or signed on to this prosperity gospel in one way or the other. Maybe you did, you, we haven't done it explicitly, but you have this working knowledge that if I'm just a good Christian, life's going to be easy for me. It's not the truth, right? God chose to enter that suffering. He chose to go through the death and come out the other side. And it's in seeking out the suffering that God calls us to, that we will find new life, that we will go through the suffering alongside other people, together as a church, alongside other people who are suffering in the world. And together we'll find the life that God has called us to. If we, if we refuse to do that, just go home. I mean, let's, let's be real blunt. If you hear this message today and you're like, no, that's not for me. I'm going to do my own thing. Like, you don't, you don't have to be here. When Jesus issues this challenge to people, they say, that's a hard teaching. Who can accept it? We're going home. And they do. People will make that choice, right? But if you're going to stay here, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, if you're going to claim to be a disciple, a follower of Christ, this is what it means. We're all together going to make hard choices. We're going to sacrifice of ourselves for the benefit of each other and more importantly, the benefit of the kingdom of God. And so we're going to end there today. Um, I tried to be a little quicker, but I think I failed, so sorry about that. But we're going to spend a little time in prayer. And so I'm going to open us up in prayer for a minute. And then we're going to spend about five minutes in silence in prayerful meditation. And I want you to pray through these questions and any others that might come to your mind. But what, it, what is it? And I, some of this can be reflection, but more than that, I want you to ask God. Say, God, what is it that I'm hanging on to too tightly? What is it that I need to let go of? What is it that you're calling me right now to let go of? And that may be just to hold more loosely. That may mean to go home and, and sell something or stop something or something you're doing that's in the way of you becoming a true servant of God. Right? So what does God need you to let go of? Um, and what do you need to sacrifice and how are you asked to enter into suffering for others? And, and there are times when God will ask you to just get, get rid of something because it's in your way, right? But more often than not, what we're talking about here is suffering for the, the betterment of the kingdom. What is it that you're being asked to do because God needs you to let go of that thing, sacrifice that thing. God needs you to be uncomfortable 
for a period because he's calling you into work that will expand his kingdom. And I don't know what that is for you, but I'm, what we're going to do now is we're going to pray about that. Together we're going to ask God to show us individually and corporately what is it that God needs us to do to relinquish what's the hard thing that sits in front of us that we may not even be aware of that God needs in order to break through in this place. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life of your son. We thank you for the model that he is. We thank you also for the power of the spirit that he sends that allows us to enter together today into this question and the knowledge that as we do so, if, if we come before you and, and truly ask, to ask a dangerous question, God, what is it that you would have me suffer for your purposes that you will answer? And so we come before you now in this moment, in the next few minutes, we put ourselves at your feet and we ask that you speak to us to show us where in our life we need to be pruned so that your will may be done.